last Lord's Day, I, I shared with you that as our, our time together just grows uh, uh, nearer and nearer and um, our last time together, the, the temptation on my part is to want to wanna really uh, do something profound and do something, you know, really let's, uh, but the Lord has been reminded me that uh, even as we transition into another phase of life and ministry for each and every one of us, our great hope is not some wise words from some guy up front who really knows nothing. It's really just to continue the tracks that we've been uh, on for the past several years together of, of just looking unto Jesus and clinging to him. And with that in mind, I began last week um, uh, what I intended to be just a couple of messages on the topic of abiding in Christ. If the Christian life is looking unto Jesus, then no matter what we go through, whether we were to continue as a ministry or whether as it appears God has seen fit for us to transition, uh, the message will be the same. The sufficiency and fullness of Christ, and He is enough, and our great responsibility is to abide in Him. So last Lord's Day, we were in John chapter 8, continuing in John's Gospel, where uh, we were looking at abiding in Christ as a defining characteristic of the true believer. Last week, we saw how those who were professing to follow Jesus with their lips, they were giving profession of faith, very quickly turned on him. And the question becomes, why? Just a moment ago, they were lauding Jesus with their lips. They were professing him to be all that he claimed to be. And then Jesus says something that kind of rubs them the wrong way, and they all leave and abandon him. And the question is, why? And Jesus answers that. It's because they're not true believers. And in John chapter 8, Jesus upholds abiding in Him, abiding in Christ as a defining characteristic of the true believer. He says in chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Now that's, that's something that every one of us have to continue to give thought to. Jesus there is explaining what genuine faith looks like. It's not a profession of faith with your lips. It's not a mental profession. It's not a verbal profession. It's not a walking the aisle and filling out the card and being baptized. None of that is a, profession, is a genuine evidence of saving faith. Jesus defines what you want to talk about, what a genuine believer looks like. It's an abiding faith. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And we talked about last week, what does it mean to abide? It means to remain. That clinging to Christ is a constant. That no matter what you go through in life, Christ continues to be your all. That's why when we drift away from Christ to another lover, to another treasure, to something else, it's not just a, a bad thing. That in and of itself is reason according to the book of Hebrews. Whoa, 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 whoa. You've deviated from the faith in that moment. Now, the cross is sufficient, but you must repent. You must forsake that treasure. You must forsake that other lover. You must forsake that prize and return to a person, Christ. Because the Christian life is one of looking unto Jesus and abiding in Him. That's where we were last week. And the need for all of us to evaluate our Christian life and assurance of Christianity on the basis of not of something we've done or saying a prayer, or professing with our lips day after day after day, but rather remaining, clinging to Christ as our all in all. Well, this morning I want us to continue to think about abiding in Christ. And this morning it will be John chapter 15. John chapter 15, where here abiding in Christ is a comfort and an encouragement to disciples of Jesus who are troubled, who are worried, who are anxious, who are fearful. So abiding in Christ is not only the defining characteristic of a true believer, but also abiding in Christ is a comfort and an encouragement to you and to I. We'll talk more about it in a moment, but let me read the passage from which we'll, I'll be preaching from this morning. John chapter 15, verse 1. I, Jesus says, am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered down into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you see? There it is again. By abiding, you prove you are my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Christ there, not only as a defining characteristic of the true believer, but there in the lives of the disciples as a comfort, as an encouragement, as a reassurance in the midst of what they're about to face, that Christ is near. And Christ is sufficient for their every need. As it will be for them, so it is for us. Well, let's bow our heads together and make this prayer our very own. O God of heaven and earth, we bless you for the happy moment when we first saw your law fulfilled in Christ. Your wrath appeased, death destroyed, sin forgiven, our souls saved. Ever since, you have been so faithful to us. Daily have we proven the power of Jesus' blood. Daily have we known the strength of the Spirit, our teacher, director, and sanctifier. We want no other rock to build upon that we have. Desire no other hope that, than that of the gospel truth. Need no other look than that which gazes on the cross. Father, forgive us if we've tried to add anything to the one foundation. If we have unconsciously relied upon our knowledge, experienced deeds, and not seen them as filthy rags. If we have attempted to complete what is perfect in Christ. May our cry be always, only Jesus, only Jesus. For in Him is freedom from condemnation, fullness in His righteousness, eternal vitality in His given life, indissoluble union and fellowship with Him. In Christ we have all that we can hold. Enlarge us that we may take in more of Him. If we backslide, let us like Peter weep bitterly and return to Christ. If I'm tempted and have no wit, give us strength enough to trust in Christ. If we're weak, May we faint upon His bosom of eternal love. If in extremity, let us feel that He alone is sufficient to deliver us. And if driven to the verge of hope and to the pit of despair, grant us grace to fall into His all-sufficient arms. O oh God, hear us and do for us more than we can ask, think, or dream in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, we do return once again this morning to John chapter 15, the passage I read to you just a few moments ago, and we want to dig a little bit more deeper into it. The title of the message this morning simply, Abiding in Christ, part two. <laughs> Nothing original there. Last week being part one where we began to see abiding in Christ as being a defining characteristic of a true believer. Um, those who are Christ's true disciples abide in Him, abide in His Word. Well, this morning, 
we want to take a, a look at another aspect of abiding in Christ from John chapter 15. Abiding in Christ as a comfort and an encouragement. You know, as we look at John chapter 15, it's a very familiar passage to us. The metaphor, the imagery is probably very familiar to us. Jesus as the true vine. But what may not be as familiar to us is the context. For the better part of probably 150 to 200 years, this, these verses have suffered from not neglect, but neglect of the context. Most of the time over the past several generations, uh, this passage of Jesus being the true vine and abiding in Christ has immediately shifted into application in the life of the, the believer, your own personal relationship with Jesus, abiding in Christ. And usually you're given then a checklist of here's what you do to abide in Christ, right? We, we like checklists. That's helpful to us. We tend to be a little on the lazy side mentally and spiritually. And so for someone to come in and take what we already know, abide in Christ, and to give us a checklist of things to do, well, that, that fits right well. And then the checklist is usually things like this. And I'm being very, very broad in general here. Read your Bible. That's how you abide in Christ. Pray. Be a, a person of prayer day after day. Uh, go to church. That's another means of grace to abide in Christ. Evangelize, share the gospel. That's a way to abide in Christ. All of those things are wonderful things. Please don't hear me in any way knocking those things or saying, no, that's not right. Most of that is right. But here's the problem. You can do all of those things and not abide in Christ. Am I right? Has that not been our own experience that going through reading the Bible, going to church, sharing the gospel, praying, yet having no intimacy with Christ whatsoever in the midst of it. And to pursue a checklist of do these things to abide in Christ with no heart for it, it's not Christianity. What, abiding, what abiding in Christ calls for is not a checklist. What it calls for is an attitude, an attitude of the heart that permeates every aspect of our life and being, an, an attitude of the heart of helplessness, of weakness, of humility, of dependence, of self-awareness of yourself as God sees you before the face of God. An attitude of awareness that drives us out of that understanding of my weakness, out of my humility, out of my need, out of my dependence. Where else will I turn but to who? The all-sufficient one. That's what my needy heart, my needy soul, my weak mind needs more than anything is the all-sufficiency of Christ. And I, I run to Him, I abide in Him always and in every circumstance for the strength that can only be derived from Him. Now, when I've got that attitude and that heart, what? I don't need somebody to give me a checklist. I go to the one and only place I can find Him. Bring me the Word of God. Prayer, you don't have to tell me to pray night, morning, night. I know my need. I know that abiding in Him in prayer is the only place I can find strength and hope in this. I am a person of prayer. Yes, go to church. Why would I do anything different? It's when the gathered people come together and look to Jesus that my soul finds nourishment that I so desperately need. Share the gospel? Absolutely. Because Christ is the great need of my heart and I'm not alone. I'm an ambassador of Christ. Do you see the difference between a checklist and a heart's attitude that understands its neediness, its helplessness, its weakness apart from Christ? Unfortunately, that's what's been lacking in teaching and preaching on passages having to do with abiding in Christ. We're quick to provide short little sermonettes with four points of application. You want to abide in Christ, do this, do this, do this, and do this. When you come to the context of this passage, the whole concept of abiding in Jesus comes in the context of a people who are going through transition, life-altering transition, neediness, helplessness, aware of their own weakness, 
And abiding in Christ for them is not a checklist. It's the only way to live. The preceding phrase at the end of chapter 14, verse 31, right before we get to the passage we read this morning in John chapter 15, the preceding passage ends this, rise, let us go from here. Now again, time's not going to allow us to go through some big long context and everything there, but the idea here, the, the, the wording there is, is kind of like a military phrase. It's, it's a, 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 a general speaking to his troops before they're going into battle. It's a general saying to his, fruit, to his troops, let's go, now's the time. Let's go meet our advancing enemy, our advancing army. Now we go. So that tells us even this that the call to abide in Christ is not how it's often portrayed as an invitation to slow down, settle down, get quiet, go somewhere where you peace and tranquility and care for your soul in the quietness of the open Bible and prayer. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying, I'm not negating the importance of things. I'm just saying that's not what this passage is about. And this passage here, it's a stirring call to battle. It's a call to to understand here in John chapter 15, God the Holy Spirit has put this passage here as a group of disciples in the upper room. They're anxious, they're worried, they're weak, they're frail. Why? They've just been informed in the previous chapters that Jesus is about to leave them. The one that they left their nets for and left their lives for to follow him. The one that for the better part of three years they have seen him do the incredible, the impossible, because he is God. He's just informed them. You guys are going to go on. You're going to continue. But without me. And these men are frightened. They're downhearted. Their master, their everything is leaving them. Unless we think we're overstating the matter, going back to chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. What's the implication there? He's already told them he's leaving. They are greatly troubled. He says in verse 18 of that chapter, I will not leave you as orphans. Why would he say something like that? Because he knows that's how they're feeling, that he's abandoning them. Like a a parent who's abandoning their children as orphans. That's what they feel like. Jesus, how could you do this? In verse 27, Jesus says, peace of chapter 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Why would he say that? He goes, because their hearts are troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? Because they are troubled. They're afraid. If we were to fast forward to chapter 16, we read these words. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you, Jesus says, to keep you from falling away. Why would he say that? Because that's a real danger. Hey, disciples, I know you've been leaning entirely upon me these last three years, and you've obeyed me, and I'm about to leave you now. You're going to go on without me. It's a real danger to say, I didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. I'm going back to my comfortable life. Jesus, I, we are, you've just told us, you've been telling us that these people are going to put you on a cross and they're going to kill you. And you want us to continue what you've called, uh, what you've called us to do. They're going to want to do the same thing to us. There's a real danger of, if you're not going with us, thanks but no thanks, we'll go back. Verse 6 of chapter 16. I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Do you see the emotional toil these disciples are going through? These are grieving, sorrowful men. That's the context. These sorrowful, apprehensive, fearful, anxious men internally asking, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? Our master's going away. He's going to leave us. We're going to be stranded. We're all by ourselves. We're alienated. We're all alone. It's in this context, John chapter 15. Jesus speaks words of comfort, encouragement, and reassurance 
to them. Words of comfort and encouragement for them and for you and I as well. As we too face the challenges of living the Christian life. So I want us to think about John chapter 15, not just abiding unto Jesus and here's what you need to do. We could probably all fill that outline out, that checklist out. But what I want us to think about are the words of Jesus, I am the true vine, as he intends them in their context to see the vine as a means of grace, as a means of encouragement, as a means of comfort in the midst of the turmoil they face. I want us to consider in a few different ways, a few different types of encouragement that the Lord addresses here. Number one, encouragement and comfort to face persecution. If you take notes or if you don't have this in your mind in parentheses, even persecution from within the church. Encouragement and comfort with regards to persecution, even persecution within the church. This is partly why the men are so terrified, the reality of persecution that's going on all around them. By this time, again, they don't understand fully, but Jesus has on more than one occasion explained to them what's about to happen to him, that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified upon the cross, that he's going to be delivered into the hands of the enemies and they are going to kill him. He's told this to them. And what's becoming more and more clear is not only that that's the reality, but what's becoming more and more clear is catch this whose hands he's being delivered over into. And whose hands in it? Their own religious leaders. The Pharisees. The Sadducees. Their own temple people. Their own church people. The very people from whom Jesus came. The Jews. It's one thing to know that Jesus is going to... It's another thing to understand now who's going to execute the crucifixion going to be the church. It's going to be their own people, their own spiritual leaders. The whole fabric of the the Jewish spiritual religious system is turning against Jesus and turning against the disciples. Again, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, the the temple leaders, the, the teachers of the law, they were all in John's gospel turning against Jesus. They're looking at him with unbelief, with denial, with rejection, with mockery, with hatred. Their intent is to murder him. And understanding that this is how Jesus is going to be leaving them, can't you begin to understand? Well, once they get rid of him, they're coming after us. We're, if, if our all-sufficient, all-powerful master is not here to protect us. We are left vulnerable. We are left lonely. Everybody thinks we're wrong. Everybody thinks we're lunatics. Everybody thinks we're fanatics because of our devotion to Jesus, that Jesus is all, that looking unto Jesus and living unto Jesus as everything they think we're kooks. You understand why they're afraid? And to them, Jesus says these words. I am the true vine. Now, let's be real honest. At least at first glance, it's like, thanks, Jesus. I'd have no idea how that helps. How is that supposed to help me in what we're going through? Well, what makes that reassuring? Let's talk about a vine. Let's talk about that imagery. At its most fundamental level, the image of a vine communicates a very simple principle. A vine, there's life. And when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's saying, I am the source of life. Spiritual life, eternal life, resurrection life. I am the true vine. I'm the source of it. I'm the origin of life. In me is everything you need. I am the vine. All running through me is life. As you're going through various things in life, things that seek to destroy, things that seek to kill, things that seek to 
frighten and worry you. At its most basic fundamental, Jesus is saying, in me is all the life you need. But let's go a little bit deeper than that. Notice Jesus calls himself the true vine. Not, I'm the vine, or I'm not a vine. He says, I am the true vine. What's the implication? The implication is what? There are false vines in in the community. So if Jesus is the true vine, what would a false vine be? Anything or anyone which people look to as a source of life other than Jesus. You following the train of thought there? Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I'm the life giver. There are false vines is the implication. Anything you look to that's not Jesus is a false vine. And time's not going to allow us to explore the fullness of this, but things we've talked about over and over. Man-made religion would be an example of a false vine, something that you feel like, you think like, you go to church and and man-made religion, and you set your hopes upon that religious system and obedience to those leaders. But if that religious system isn't inundating your soul with the fullness of Jesus. It's a false vine. It won't lead to life. Another, materialism is an an example of a false vine. Haven't we all put our hope in money or possessions or getting the right thing? If I can just get this, this job, or get this possession, or man, it's going to change me. It's going to make me happy. It's going to fulfill me. Well, it never does. It may for a moment. But it can't. Why? Because it's not Christ. Christ is the true vine. Anything else is a false vine. Moralism would be a false vine. The belief that you and I are intrinsically, basically good, capable of laying hold of anything, even a relationship with God, if we just do the right things. Give me a checklist of things to do. I'll do them. I'll earn God's favor. I'll earn my standing. And that day, Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But Jesus, we did this, we did that. Go and look at my record of righteousness. That's the problem. That's moralism. That's not Christianity. You don't get to heaven because you read your Bible, because you went to church, because you prayed, because you shared the gospel. The most religious people ever reside in hell forever. Why? Because life is found in Christ alone. His righteousness, His morality, His perfection. You see, you're either in a true vine or a false vine. And Jesus is telling His disciples as a means of encouragement to them, I am the true vine. In me is life. Let's take it a little bit deeper as we're trying to understand this vine concept. How is this supposed to be reassuring to these disciples? Well, a vine gives life. Jesus is the true vine as opposed to false vines, but there's something that would have been known to them that's maybe not as familiar to us, that the vine was kind of the national symbol of the Jews, of Israel. Think about for you and I, the stars and stripes are kind of right, the the national symbol of America. Well, for the Jews, it would have been a vine. They printed a vine on their coins. They had vines on the, uh, the holy entrance into the temple. A vine was there. It was a national symbol. And throughout the Old Testament, you've got to understand this. Jesus has, or God has many references to the land of Israel as being the true vine. Passages such as Psalm chapter 80. There, you brought a vine out of Egypt, the psalmist says. You brought a vine out of it. Well, who did he bring out of Egypt? Israel, right? Going all the way back to Exodus. He just called them a vine there. And then we have passages such as in Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. He just simply, he's calling them a vine. So the vine is the people of God. As we look at the Old Testament references. But as we take a close look at the vine in the Old Testament, the vine, which is Israel, is not always a good vine, is it? 
The vine doesn't always bear good fruit. In fact, the vine is a bad vine. It doesn't bear much fruit. The vine is somewhat of a failure. The vine, Israel, is a disappointment to God. In Jeremiah 2, God says this about Israel. I planted you a choice vine. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine or a spoiled vine or a dead vine? I planted you to be a vine. What did we say a vine was? It's life. Life unto God. I planted you to be my people, to live unto me, to love me, to serve me. How is it you've become a spoiled vine? Well, we know they disobeyed the Lord. They turned from the Lord. So is that the end of the vine? No. No, that was just a picture. John chapter 15, Jesus now says something that is captivating. I am the true vine. Yeah, 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 Israel in the Old Testament was the vine. They were never the true vine. They were setting it up for the true vine to come. The picture of a vine in the Old Testament, Israel. They didn't obey the Lord. They didn't fulfill their duties as a vine, as a life-giving vine of pointing people to the Lord. And they showed the need of a true vine. Jesus here saying, I am that true vine. It's not that he's just now become the true vine. He's always been the true vine. When you go back to the Old, Old Testament, if, if under the Old Covenant, if anyone under the Old Covenant was made alive to God, it was by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, even in the Old Testament, was the true vine. By grace through faith in the promises of the coming Messiah, the, of the coming Christ. Christ has always been the true vine. And Jesus is saying, it's always been about me. I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies. I am the one who come, comes in and does what Israel was supposed to do but couldn't do. God's vineyard is me. The place you go and meet with God is me. I am God's land. I am God's grace. I am the life of God. I am the source of blessing to the world. Which is what God told Abram all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, right? Go to a land that um, you don't know and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And in the immediate context of the Old Testament, it looks like because Israel comes from Abraham, that that's the blessing to the nations. No. Who came from Abraham? You follow the lineage of the Old Testament into the New, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the blessing to the nations. He's the true vine. Jesus here is declaring what national Israel failed to do, what they couldn't do, what really they were never designed to do. I came. So how does this reassure the disciples in their fear of all that's going on? It's simply this. Disciples, be comforted, be encouraged. If the religious leaders do to you what they did to me, they're false. They're false leaders. They're not true vines. They're false vines. They're unbelieving. It's in me where life is found, even if they do the worst to you. If they were to do to you what they do to me, in killing me, in me is life, resurrection life, eternal life, spiritual life. So here's the message to you and I. The, the world may persecute you. The church may mock you because their understanding of Christianity and the Christian life is religious, self-focused, moral, good works, usually with Jesus, some, the name of Jesus somewhere attached to it. But it's not Jesus and Jesus alone. They'll think they may mock you by saying you are one-dimensional or that you are dry and boring. It's always Jesus, which don't get me wrong, it's not a bad thing. But come on, you've got to talk about other things other than Jesus. Well, you don't seem to find that anywhere in God's economy of words of what glorifies and pleases him. It's Jesus. And Jesus is telling them and to you and I to hold on to Christ because he's the true vine. 
The world is not the true vine. It's a false vine. The church, apart from the Christian church, is not the true vine. It's a false vine. Christ is the true vine. Abide in Him. Cling to Him. Fear not what man can do to the body. What he can do to your reputation. What he can do to your mental state. But you cling to Christ in whom your life is found. The professing, much of the professing church today has no time for Christ alone. You and I can't allow that to intimidate us or detract us away from the message of the gospel. It is Christ. And the Christian life is one of clinging and abiding in Him. Number two, these words of Jesus, I am the true vine, abide in me, bring encouragement and comfort Regarding the nearness of our all-sufficient Christ. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. That's a wonderful statement when you think about this. Now, stay with you. You kind of have to think through this imagery. He's just said he's going away, and the thought is we're going to lose him. He's going away. We're going to lose him. We're going to be separated from him. We're going to be cut off. Well, Jesus addresses that right here. I'm the vine, you are the branches. That sure doesn't sound like being cut off, does it? If anything, it's the exact opposite. He says, I am going away, but you're not losing a thing. You're not going to be separated from me. There's not going to be a distance. I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, you're part of me. I'm part of you. We cannot be separated. We're joined in the closest possible way. When you look at that verse, verse 5, you've got to read it in that way. It's not just a cool picture. He's addressing a fear and concern of separation, that they're going to be distanced from their master. And He says nothing of the sort. We are eternally joined in the closest, most intimate possible way. And that's why, in this context, some eight, nine, ten times, I, I didn't take the time to count. I should have. I, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Over and over. Why? Because he's, he's addressing the concern that they're going to be separated. They're not. Jesus says, yes, I'm going away. But our union, our intimacy, our nearness, what we have, our closeness, Cannot be broken, but you have to abide in me. It's a command. You got to do something. And yes, again, we talked about earlier, reading your, the Bible, where do, you, where do you grow near Christ? It's through the scriptures, through prayer, through the local church. But it's not just a checklist, a command to do this, 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 and this. We need to think about this not only as a command, but read it this way. It's a huge encouragement because what? Their great concern is Christ is going away. The one that they love more than anything is being taken away from them. This goes back to something we talked about last week. This goes back to something we've addressed over and over. One of the defining characteristics, maybe the ultimate defining characteristic of a true believer is your love for Jesus. And last week in John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said these words, If God is your Father, you would love me. This is what sets the Christian apart. Not that we're church attenders, now that we say the right things with our lips, now that we have a checklist of things, but it's a heart of love for Jesus. Out of our neediness, out of our helplessness, out of our weaknesses, our eyes have been opened by the Spirit of God to see the all-sufficiency, the fullness of Christ, the beauty of Christ that nothing else can compare to. And I've pursued Him, and I've, I'm clinging to Him. I'm holding on to Him because I love Him. And so when Jesus says to them, I'm the branch, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. He's not just giving them a checklist of things to do. He's telling them what? Stay with me. This is so important. The thing that you're most scared about losing, the thing that you love the most? Uh -uh. 
What I'm telling you to do is what you most want to do. You have found in me over the course of these few years together everything your soul was... You left your nets, you left your families, you left everything you knew to follow me because you saw in me your all in all. The Spirit of God opened your eyes to see the beauty of Christ. And now I'm your great love. I am everything to you. And the reason you're fearful, the reason you're anxious, the reason you're worried is because I, your lover, am being taken away from you. At least that's what you think. It's nothing of the sort. Nothing can break what we have. If you abide in me, cling to me, I'm not going anywhere. Physically, yes, but the relationship we have, I'm as near as I've ever been. You say you love me. Here's the good news. Do what your heart most wants. Pursue me. You see what an encouragement that is to them? What a comfort. Now, I will say this, and I say this with all sincerity and honesty. To the soul here this morning that does not understand love for Jesus as being the defining characteristic of the Christian, you will hear this and it will mean nothing to you. And use that as a measurement of your own soul. If you hear Jesus' words here and that he's giving them the very thing they want most to continue to pursue him and love for him, if you don't understand that that's really what they love most, then you probably have yet to understand the gospel. And I say that with all genuineness and trepidation, but at the same time, we have, at some point we have to wrestle with this. Because Jesus has all too often said, it is so easy to say with your lips the right things. I love Jesus, yet have a heart that doesn't understand it. Jesus says, abide in me. And for them, this is good news. For them, this is, we get, can we abide in you? Because that's our great fear. We're losing you, and you are what we love more than anything. If you're leaving us, how can we abide in you? Is this really possible? Are we really going to be joined together? And Jesus says, yes, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You're not going to be separated from me. There's going to be no distance and the reality of our relationship one with another. Yes, I'm physically going to the cross, I'll rise again, and then I'm going to the right hand of the Father. So spatially, yes, there will be a distance, but the relationship, what we have, the intimacy, the nearness, will not be affected whatsoever. I am as accessible to you as I've always been. Your love for me, continue to pursue me. Stay loyal, stay committed, stay devoted. And why is this good news for them? Because that's the very thing they want more than anything. What about you this morning? Don't answer quickly. Is that intimacy with Christ because of your love for Him what you want more than anything? When sin enters into your life and disrupts your fellowship with Lord, Is it your guilt? Is it your fear of being caught? Or is it the disruption of your love for Jesus that affects you the most to deal with that sin? For these disciples, these words were an encouragement to them because of how deeply and richly and truly they loved Jesus. For this to be an encouragement to you and I, we have to have that love for Christ as well. If you find it not there, seek the Lord right now. Right now, I'm going to continue talking. You can stop and seek the Lord and say, I have never known anything of this. I've I've heard it now for years and years and years, but I have never known anything of this. I've never loved Jesus like this. God, open my eyes. Give me that love. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Moving on, another encouragement or comfort that these words of Jesus gives to the disciples. It is fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. These men have been tasked with a large task. Jesus is leaving them. They're going to be left behind to continue the work that Christ began. They are going to have to advance 
the gospel of Christ to the ends of the world. It's going to begin there, but there are going to be his witnesses in Palestine and uh, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. How are they going to do that? How are they going to cope with such a huge task? These disciples are nothing special. They're not better than us. They're just like us. They're weak. They're not particularly gifted. The Gospels have laid out for us their imperfections, their mistakes all along the way. <laughs> How is this group of little men going to fulfill the task that they've been given? Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There's the comfort. Lord, how in the world are we going to do this without your presence here with us, your physical presence? The answer is, I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you abide in me, which I'm telling you is what you most want to do. He it is that bears much fruit. When God made Adam, he gave him a responsibility. Be fruitful and multiply. To Old Testament Israel, God said, be fruitful. Both of them failed. Adam failed, Adam and Eve. Israel failed. But Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I don't fail. I don't find. I am the vine, the supremely fruitful vine. There's never been a more fruitful vine on earth than Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, if you abide in me, my fruitfulness will pour into you. The life of me will pour into you. And if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now, what in the world does fruitfulness mean? We live in a day today when you think about the Christian being fruitful. Here's how it tends to be measured. More holiness. Being more loving. Seeing more people one to Christ. For a church, more church members. For some reason, we feel the need to reduce fruitfulness to one or more of these particular things. That fruitfulness equals more holiness, more loving to others, more converts, more people attending your church. Do we see that anywhere in the New Testament? The answer is no. The idea of fruitfulness has always been Christ-likeness. The idea, the biblical understanding of fruitfulness has always been to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Jesus makes it clear to these disciples that their witness will be incredibly astonishing. And when you get to the early chapters of Acts, we see, certainly see a very unique, unrepeated evidence of grace, of, of a fruit-bearing ministry, as many came to receive Christ. But then you don't see that again replicated. But what you do see is the emphasis is not on the numbers, it's of, on true conversions. It's on people being conformed to the likeness of Christ. The, the church coming together around the person and work of Jesus Christ. We live in a day today where we are often discouraged with ourselves. Because by the world's understanding of fruitfulness, we just don't feel like we live up. There's so much remaining sin in my life. Where's the fruit of making me more holy? There's little growth in our Christian life. Where's the fruitfulness of me, me becoming this mega-Christian? I'm an ambassador for Christ, but no one ever wants to repent and profess faith in Jesus. And we become very discouraged that we are not very fruitful. Well, on the one hand, if we're going to be discouraged being this way, 
be discouraged with ourselves because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. <laughs> so uh, there's your discouragement. Not only can you do nothing, you will do nothing on your own. You're not the vine. But we're not apart from him. That's the message he's been giving here. We are closely joined to Christ. And as we abide, he says, verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit being Christ-likeness. We read about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The love of Christ, the peace of Christ, the patience of Christ, the kindness of Christ. As you abide in Christ, looking unto Jesus, clinging to Him in the Word, as you're seeking communion and intimacy with Him, and we all with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 4, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same likeness from one degree of glory to another. As you abide in Christ and look unto Christ and live unto Christ, being conformed to His likeness, you will begin to bear the fruit of becoming more like Him. Christ-like love, Christ-like kindness, Christ-like patience, living with a greater impact for God as you reflect Christ to the world around you. But fruitfulness is not the product of reading the next book on church growth or evangelism or holiness or godliness. Growth in grace is the product. Fruitfulness is the product of looking unto Jesus and remaining, abiding, clinging to Him and His perfections in the Word. That's a message that has been long lost in our day today. I'm all for books being written on evangelism and church growth, but the message has to change. The message is the sufficiency of Christ, the fullness of Christ to produce Christ-like fruitfulness for the glory of God. So there's comfort about persecution, comfort regarding intimacy and nearness with God, comfort about fruitfulness, and lastly, comfort and encouragement about pain in this life. Pain in this life. One thing about vines, and I had to, you know, depend. I'm not an outdoorsman. I'm not a uh, working gardens and kind of guy. I tend to kill things. Probably this is why. Vines evidently need attention. They need a lot of attention, especially twice in the year. I'm told vines in the autumn, the vine dresser will come and cut it severely. Like once the fall comes and the bloom is over, come and almost savagely cut a vine back. The message being that in, in Israel in winter, you find just black, ugly stumps that you would never imagine could ever become anything life-giving or meaningful. It's just a burned-up stick that's been pruned back so savagely back to the roots. That's the, the first attention. And then... The second pruning comes in the spring after some growth has come, some fruitfulness has come. The vine dresser will come and nip some of the buds, cut it off. Some of it that, that, that grows close to the ground, they'll cut it off. Anything that's going to take away from the growth of the, the structure and the, 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 the bloom of the plant will be cut away. That's exactly what Jesus refers to here. In John 15, verse 15 uh, chapter 15, verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's kind of that first pruning in the fall. He just savagely comes and cuts it away. And then keep reading. And every branch that does, that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. That's kind of the second pruning, right? After it's become fruitful, there's a bloom, but he comes and prunes it. Why? That it may bear more fruit. It's already bearing fruit. But that it will do more, he'll come and cut away a little bit. Now, to me, the process sounds cruel. It sounds wasteful. I mean, if there's already a perfectly good bloom there. Why are you cutting it away? Because the vine dresser knows. 
in order to maximize the fruitfulness, it needs to cut away certain things. Why is Jesus telling them this? He's warning them. He's warning us that God has saved you and brought you into a relationship with Jesus Christ for a reason, for a purpose, for his purpose. And to accomplish his purpose in your life and his purpose being to know him, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, to live everything unto him in order to maximize that purpose in your life. He's not going to leave you alone. He's going to prune you. And how does the Lord do that? Well, there's a couple of ways. One of them's not as bad as the other, but it's not exactly fun. One of them's right here through the Word of God. One of the ways that God prunes is is through the Word of God. Verse 3 says about the disciples in John chapter 15, already you are clean because of the Word I've spoken to you. That the Word of God has had a cleansing effect, has had a pruning effect upon their lives. The point there being that the Bible, the Word of God, the Word of Christ, when we hear it preached or when we read it, we are being rebuked, we are being corrected, we are being addressed, we're being instructed that we might put to death the things in our life that the Word of God reveals aren't pleasing to the Lord and that we might grow in righteousness, Christ-likeness, fruitfulness. That's what Paul talks about in Timothy. Uh, The Word of God is perfect. It's, It's given to make you complete. What's the implication? You're not complete. You're not whole. And the Word of God comes and gives you instruction, teaching, wisdom to help grow you for the Lord. That's one of the ways the Lord prunes, through the Word of God. Secondly, and far more painfully, more severely, the pain of the pruning knife. What does that pruning knife do? It cuts. It cuts away. It cuts off things that look like they're important, that they're necessary to the vine. But the vine dresser comes and he cuts away something that maybe we think is important, something that's painful to lose. And I promise you, none of us want this. None of us would ask for this. And every one of us, if if you're a believer, has been through this. It hurts when the Lord comes and takes evil things that are important to you, that you love. When he takes those things away, it hurts. And when the Lord comes and takes away things that are not necessarily evil, things that you love, things that you care about, a child, a grandchild, a job, When the Lord comes and takes away something, it's not evil, but he cuts it out of your life. There's an intention behind it. It's not unlike what we read not too long ago in Ecclesiastes 3. In life, there's a time for everything. There's a time for life. There's a time for death. There's a time for pruning. There's a time for growth. There's a time for joy, time for sorrow. And those times are in the hands of a sovereign God. And we don't understand his timing. We don't understand his reasoning. But Solomon goes on to write, but what God is doing is he's building a beautiful tapestry for his glory. In his timing, for his glory and for your good, he's doing everything necessary to fulfill his promise in you, to to increase your joy in him and in him alone. Do we want this kind of pruning? No. It's costly. I was reading not too long ago just an article about a, a missionary woman who was, I think she was meeting with a youth group and was giving her testimony and One of the young ladies went up to her afterwards and was just with tears in her eyes saying, oh, how I long to have a a testimony like yours. To be able to go and share with people the work of God like you've shared. And the missionary put her hand on her shoulder with tears in her eyes and says, be careful what you wish for. 
Because to get me to where to this testimony, I pretty much had to lose everything. It was a process that God had, a pruning process used in the life of this missionary to bring her to the place of fruitfulness for his glory and her joy. Everything is what it costs. But here's the wonderful thing. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes. <laughs> he does so. Not because he's being mean, but for your good and his glory. The best branches get the knife. Let that encourage you. You may need to seek the face of God to understand that, but that's the message here in John 15. The best branches get the knife. The branches with the most potential get the knife. The knife isn't necessarily a sign of condemnation. It's not a sign of anger. It's a sign of love that God is at work. We sang a song intentionally just a few moments ago, written by John Newton. So oftentimes we go through life and we face things and we ask the Lord, why? Why is this happening? I don't understand. I've lost this loved one. I'm struggling with this area of my life. I'm immensely discouraged. Why are you doing these things, God? Why are these things happening? Very often it's the Father's pruning us for grateful faithfulness, for grateful fruitfulness. And with God's help, that can be a great encouragement to you. We sang these words a moment ago by John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Amen. Who, you, I, I can't imagine a believer not desiring that. Not that we always perfectly walk with that, but I ask the Lord I would grow in faith and love and grace and might more of his salvation know and more earnestly seek his face. That's the prayer of every true believer. And then, I hoped, this would be the response to the prayer, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sin and give me rest. I, I asked the Lord that I might grow. So Lord, would you put to death my hunger and thirst for sin? Will you just kind of satisfy that, subdue it so that I don't want sin anymore? I don't crave those idols. I want Jesus. That's kind of the prayer we pray. But in practical wisdom and personal experience, Newton penned these words, probably with an understanding of John 15 in his mind. But instead of this, not the easy way that I wanted he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. And more than that, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Meaning what? He's intentionally intensifying the agony, the affliction, the suffering I'm going through. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, meaning here's how I want to grow. Give me more time in God's word. Take away my hunger for sin. Surround me with good people who will encourage me. Those are easy things. He crossed out the fair designs I schemed, I schemed and blasted my gourds and he laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue thy worm to death? And the Lord replied, Tis in this way I answer prayer for grace and power. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that are anything other than me. Why? Why do you do this? That you may find your all 
in me. I'm taking you through a painful process of losing, you losing things you love dearly, bad things, good things, because here's my good intention. You want to grow in grace? You want to grow in love? I'm going to kick everything out from underneath you until you've got nothing but me. And you see that in me is everything you've ever wanted. Brothers and sisters, do you want that pruning? It's a means of grace. The Lord afflicts us that he might comfort us, he himself, with the sufficiency of Christ. And through the pruning, make us more fruitful, more Christ-like to him and for his use. The knife isn't a bad thing. A knife in the hand of a mugger, it's dangerous. A knife in the hand of a surgeon is helpful, is precision. A knife in the hands of an almighty sovereign God who's rich in kindness and mercy is always perfect in what he does to encourage us, to comfort us, to empower us for his glory. Brothers and sisters, abiding in Christ, the Christian life is looking unto Jesus and abiding in him in every season of life. How is it between your soul and Christ? Is, are you abiding as a defining characteristic of a true believer? If not, seek the Lord. Are you seeking comfort and encouragement in that Christ is the vine and you are the branches? In him is life, in him is everything. Abide, 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 abide. Sense your neediness, sense your weakness, sense your helplessness, sense your fears. Recognize that in Christ is everything. Where else would I go? Abide, cling 